Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Good morning, everybody. I think I sang a bit too much in that How Great Thou Art. I almost lost my voice. So Jonah and Amy, they're away for a couple of weeks on a well-earned rest. Um, Jason and Melissa, they're still away on their sabbatical. And they much need a sabbatical. They've got about three or four weeks to go. And so I think that this morning, you're stuck with me. Um, sorry. My name's Philip Summers. I'm, you might have met me up at the uh, coffee counter in the back there in the foyer. I, um, I work there from time to time. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Bergen Park Church. Um, so talking of coffee, uh, I wasn't on duty today, but I saw that Nancy, <coughs> Nancy Choate and Jane Kettering were both busy up there working hard, doing a fine job. And so I think the coffee's pretty good, and so if part of the way through the message, your voice gets a bit, your throat gets a bit dry, you need something, or if the sermon's too dry, just head out there to the back, to the right, the coffee's there, you can just grab the cup. I've always understood that it's really important when you're public speaking to set your audience at rest and yourself by um, maybe telling a joke or like, giving some kind of interesting a- anecdote. Well, my wife says that none of my jokes are funny, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to skip that bit. Um, and, um, and, and so I tried to think of an interesting anecdote, but you know, I spent some time, I Googled a bit, I couldn't come up with anything interesting, so I'm going to skip that one too. <laughs> but... Make the audience laugh twice, check and check. All right, and so in all seriousness though, I am, I'm not from around these parts. Um, so you might have detected that, I'm not sure, but I didn't bring a translator with me in today and I'm gonna try and speak clearly, but if you do have trouble understanding me, just wave something. I'll try and slow down. Or alternatively, you could just go out the back and get a cup of coffee, okay? <laughs> so let's just, let's just, um, let's just start with some prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the most wonderful God, Lord, that you are so great that we can come before you in awe and wonder, looking upon your majesty, the worship, falling worship before you. And Father, I just pray that you'll speak to us this morning, that our ears will hear what you've got to say, Lord, and and that our our hearts will be open to receive from you, and Lord, that we become more like you and be drawn to you, Lord. God, do your work in us this morning and, and bind us together. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, um... Hang on, let me just set my stopwatch so that I don't go three hours. So the beginning of Ephesians chapter four, as Jonah told us last week, Paul urged you to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. Paul went on to say, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One Lord, one God. Those words remind me of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's the beginning of the Shema, the, the prayer that forms the core of the Jewish evening and morning and evening devotions. The Lord by whom we've been called, the Lord whom we serve, is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In past weeks, Jonah has talked to us about the importance of knowing who God is, the importance of knowing him personally, and importance of, and then from that we can realize what God has called us to be, 
Um, and in this next section of Ephesians, um, in, starting in verse 7, um, Paul's going to turn the spotlight for a bit from the unity of God, from the unity of the church, to the diverse, diversity within the body of Christ. Um, now, the phrase diversity training, that might get a bit of a different reaction from some people, different groups. Some of you might be positive to that idea, some of you might be a bit negative to that idea, but and I'm, I can tell I'm already talking fast, and you probably can't understand a word I'm saying. Um, but it may interest you to know that Paul spent a lot of time giving diversity training to the New Testament church. And if you stick with me, you'll see what I mean. So our passage today is um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, but we're actually going to start reading from verse 1. So, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is, in all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens and in order to fill the whole of the universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the truth and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed, and, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So let's compare verse 6 from last week's passage um, with verse 7. In verse 6 we learn that God is the Father of us all, that God is above all, that God is through all and in all. In verse 7 we find that grace was given to each of us. The word all speaks to us as a group, it speaks to us, to us of a group, the body of Christ. The word each tells us that um, there are individuals within the body of Christ to whom Christ gives gifts as he sees fit. There's one body, there's one faith, but we're not all the same. There's no celestial cookie cutter machine where we all get scooped up and dropped in the top and then out of the bottom pops this row on, the, on a conveyor belt, props this row of identical new Christian creations. God is a God of variety. He intended us to be different. We are strong in some areas. We are weak in others. Some temptations we laugh at and walk straight past. Other temptations trip us up every time. When we realize this and learn humility, then we can learn to depend on others and be depended on. Right back at the beginning, of the Bible in Genesis, God declared it's not good for man to be alone. 
And what does he mean? Why did he say this? God designed us to be in community. In the word community, you find the word unity. Together one. But coming together and being one is difficult because we are all different. We're different from each other. We may have different appearances, different strengths, different personalities, different cultures, even different accents. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the differences in our social status, our, economic, our social position, our economic status, our cultural heritage. But here in Ephesians, he's concerned about the different gifts of grace that Christ gives to us. Why does God give us different great gifts? He wants us to come together in relationship and depend on one another. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul wrote, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am, and although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given me to preach the gen- to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's saying, preaching to you Gentiles is a gift that Christ gave me. Others preach to the Jews, some stay in Antioch, some go in a room and just study, but me... My gift is to travel around the Mediterranean and preach. Was it a good gift? Yes, of course. Matthew chapter 7 tells us that God gives good gifts to his children. Was it an easy gift? No, I don't think so. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was whipped, beaten, in danger of drowning, in danger of being attacked, often starving, thirsty, cold, and naked. What a gift. And it came to him through the goodness of God's grace. It seems difficult, but Paul tells us there's nothing he would rather have than what God wants to give him. Sorry, excuse me a second. So in chapter 3, verse 7, Paul refers to God's gift of grace. And in chapter 4, verse 7, he refers to the grace that has been given, given by Christ as he apportions it to us. Now, a quick word about grace is needed here. There's a grace that saves us, and it is given to all who believe Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it says that by grace we have been saved. So in that sense, we have all received grace. However, this is not that kind of grace that Paul's talking about. Paul's grace here is, in verse 7 is not the grace that is given to save us. It's the grace that's given to equip us for service. And it's shared out under the direction of Christ. Back when we were looking at chapter 2, we learned that the unity of the church comes from God's grace, reconciling us to himself. And so to each other. Reconciliation is needed between people who are enemies. Okay, we were God's enemy. We were each other's enemy. Oh, hang on a second. We were God's enemy, we were each other's enemy. But Romans 5 says that since we've been justified by faith, we have, been, we have peace through God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later in chapter 5 it says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Christ is the cornerstone of what God is building. The diversity of the church comes from different gifts of grace distributed to the members of the body of Christ. I've used the phrase gifts of grace up to now, but in Ephesians here, Paul calls them the gifts of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, they're called the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 12, they're called the gifts of God's grace. Okay, whether we, whether we refer to them as the gifts of the Father, or the gifts of the Son, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, one thing is clear. These gifts come from the throne room of God, and they're distributed as God decides. Coming back to diversity in the church, it's God's intention that we should serve in a different ways, learn the importance of each other, 
in God's plan and learn how to complement and support one another. Paul demonstrates God's intention in this by using the illustration of a body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is giving instruction on the use of spiritual gifts within the body. He lists nine spiritual gifts and then he goes on later to instruct about the orderly exercise of those gifts within the context of the church gathering. The two extremes of over-enthusiastic exercise and no exercise at all, they're both extremes that need correction. However, in the middle of that passage of those thoughts, he talks about God's deliberate plan that we should work together and be dependent on each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 16, he goes through the example of a body. He says, the body is a unit, and though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Now the body is made up of not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. His illustration goes on, but I think we can see what he's driving us towards. There are many parts but one body, and each part is important. There are many gifts, there are many recipients, but there's one body of Christ, there's one giver, there's one Lord of all. After telling us in verse 7 that the gifts are from Christ, Paul quotes in verse 8 um, a psalm. He, he quotes a bit from Psalm 68. In verse 8 it says, This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So Psalm 68 is really a call to God to demonstrate his power as in previous times, to show himself as victorious and triumphant over his enemies. In such times, and even in, in recent history, you know, a victorious king or a victorious leader would receive gifts from those who he conquered, um, and he would give gifts to those who he valued. And, he, and so in Colossians 2.15 here, Paul declares that Jesus, by the cross, Jesus triumphed over his enemies and made a public spectacle of them. Back at the beginning of Ephesians, if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes, Jesus ascended far above all authorities, powers, and titles, either in this age or in the one to come. Paul applies Psalm 68, verse 18, to Christ, the triumphant king, who gives gifts to his people. In verses 9 and 10, it says, when, the, when it says... What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So he's got a little parenthetical thought there to kind of underline what he's saying. And it may seem a little confusing, and, and it has caused a lot of debate over the years. Early church tradition held that this little section was a, was a reference to, to Jesus going down into Hades to the, land, to the, to the world of the dead and to preaching which is kind of in line with the thought in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, where it says that Jesus went down and preached to the spirits in prison. John Calvin and later theologians argued that it was just in reference to his incarnation on earth, earth being a much lower place than the glory he left behind. And in Philippians 2, Paul writes that Christ made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So whichever interpretation you have for 9 and 10, whether it's going down into, into Hades or just coming down to earth, Paul wants us to understand something here. This triumphant Jesus, this king who ascended far above all authorities and powers is the same Jesus that came down to us and walked with us and gives gifts today to us. The gifts of Christ are precious. Now in the natural order of things, let's say for example the President of the United States or some other person that you esteem was to, was to make a, an offer of a gift, it would be highly sought after. Okay, my thoughts go to possibly some jewelry from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. But for ex- how much more eagerly should we desire to receive gifts to the church from King Jesus? Gifts that will have eternal significance. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 tells us that the gifts are very different. He says there are different gifts, different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Paul lists different gifts here in Ephesians. And then he lists different ones again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he lists different gifts again in Romans chapter 12. And these lists are different in nature. And Paul's examples may be just that, examples. They may not, it may not be an exhaustive list. But let's look at what he talks about specifically here in Ephesians. He gave some to be apostles. Hold on a second. So I'll do a little bit of an impression of Jonah here and give you some Greek. <clears throat> so he gave some to be apostles. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means one who's sent to represent another or one who's sent under orders. And this was the sense that it would have been used in the Aramaic equivalent, which Jesus and his disciples spoke. They didn't use Greek. And it would have been a, a legal, in a legal sense, it would have been much like the power of attorney that we have today. So if you sent an apostle somewhere on your behalf, when he got to wherever he was going to go and he spoke, the words that he spoke would have exactly the same legal weight as if you said them yourself. And so in that sense, Jesus sent, in that sense, Jesus sent the disciples out under orders to represent him. They were to speak his words, a bit like an ambassador. An ambassador speaks, he doesn't speak for himself, he speaks for the country he represents. So the apostle goes out and the words that he speaks are the words that he speaks on behalf of the person that sent him. And they have exactly the same weight as if the original person had spoken. Another meaning of apostle could just be a messenger. For example, someone who's sent out from a church as a missionary. And in that sense, in that wider sense, you know, all Christians at different times in their lives could fulfill the role of an apostle. However, that's not what Paul means here. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul stated the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone. His language communicates to us the idea that the foundation of the church is set. In, this, in that sense, the, once the original apostles appointed by Christ finished their work, the foundation was complete. We can say that there are no apostles with equal authority to the original apostles, the original disciples, and to Paul. But that's not to say that there aren't people today with apostolic ministry. For example, those called to go into unreached areas and to undertake pioneer mission work and to go and do church planting, they're fulfilling the same role that Paul fulfilled back in the New Testament. However, the foundation of the church, the doctrinal beliefs, has been set. Any teaching from any pulpit or any tree anywhere in the world should be tested 
and scrutinized to see that it lines up with scripture. He sent some to be prophets. A prophet is one who receives <clears throat> you know, a revelation from God and speaks his word faithfully. Such a person would act as a mouthpiece for God. In Paul's mind, again, I think here, he's, he's got the notion of the prophets who laid the foundation of the church. For example, the Old Testament prophets who foretold the Messiah's coming and his work. And in that sense, we have no prophets today. Otherwise, we'd have to add their words to Scripture. However, just as with apostolic ministry, there are those within, in the church with prophetic ministry. Okay, numerous times in the New Testament, references made to those with a prophetic gift. For example, in Acts chapter 11, chapter 13, 15, and 21. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14 talks in great detail about the gift of prophecy and encourages the Corinthian church to seek it from the Holy Spirit. So the contemporary gift of prophecy will often provide anointed exposition of the word, sensitive application of biblical truth to current situations, conviction of sin to the listener, strengthening and encouragement. In circumstances where the gift of prophecy exercises, the hearer should always scrutinize any message and test it against scripture. He gave some to be evangelists. The word evangelist, the word evangelize is used many times um, to, to kind of describe the spreading of the gospel. And so there's a sense in which all of us as Christians have an obligation to act as an evangelist. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, <clears throat> the, the disciples were told to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole world to preach the gospel. Now there's no way they could have achieved that themselves. So. They depended on the people that were they, they shared their message with had to carry on that work, and that includes us. And so in that, in that sense, we too are evangelists. But I think here, once again, Paul is talking about the specific gift, the specific gift of the church distributed to some. And we can think of people like Billy Graham, George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday. He gave some to be pastors and teachers. I'm using the NIV, I know a lot of you have got the ESV, I'm very sorry. In the ESV it says shepherds, so, but the word pastor use, has the imagery of a shepherd looking after a sheep. <clears throat> and in New Testament times, this would have been someone who was actively working with the flock. So someone who was guiding the sheep, someone who was protecting the sheep, someone who was making sure the sheep have food to eat. Guiding the flock away from dangerous places, protecting them from predators, providing food. In a spiritual sense, a pastor provides food for the church by teaching, counseling. So we can expect a pastor to be a teacher, although not all teachers are pastors. The gifts mentioned here by Paul, they are all focused in some way on a teaching ministry. And by speaking as God's mouthpiece, the apostles and the prophets have laid the foundation of the church. The evangelists have, ex the evangelists have expanded the reach of the Christian message to by bringing it to new listeners. The pastors look after the, and teach those who have joined the church, and the teachers expound and increase the knowledge of God further. These are important gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 31 tells us, challenges us to desire eagerly the greater gifts. We must let our faith be challenged and seek and respond to God's calling. Some of, some of us may be tempted to think, well, I could never teach or expound the word. I could never pastor a small group or pastor a church. I could never head out as an evangelist or practice the other gifts mentioned, such as prophecy, healing, faith, discernment, service, giving. I could never do any of that. But remember, we're talking about God's gifts, not natural abilities. Okay, if Christ wants to apportion grace to us to move into a certain area of ministry, then we're going to be able to do it. 
And also, we should never contain what God wants to do in us by saying something such as, that's not my gift. I can't do that, that's not my gift. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it says that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts to each as he determines. So if one day someone needs God, God needs someone of great pray, faith, sorry. If one day someone needs God, someone, God needs someone of great faith to pray for someone else, and you are the only Christian in the room, then guess who he's going to use? when God calls on us and says, I'm doing a new thing here, step out with me, be part of it, it can be scary. It can be exciting. It will always be worth it. Okay, without the working of the Holy Spirit, I would never be able to stand up here and speak to you. My natural personality is shy and withdrawn. I shrink from drawing attention to myself. But as I sought the Lord in obedience, he challenged me, he challenged my faith, and he changed me. So what's the purpose of these gifts? The purpose of the gifts is to prepare God's people for the works of service. Verse uh, 12. In case you're trying to keep up. So so Jesus' purpose in giving gifts to to the church is to equip us, to prepare us for works of service that he's going to call on, call on us to do. In, In the ESV it says works of ministry. Works of ministry, works of service. It's the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says that we are God's handiwork, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. So God is calling us to do good works that he's prepared. But knowing full well how inadequate we often prove ourselves to be in our own strength, he also gives us gifts to help us fulfill our calling. God has a plan for all creation. He has a plan for you and he has a plan for me and it's the best plan ever. He wants you and me to play a part in it, not just receive a blessing from it. Okay, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that there are different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service. In Romans 12, he says, there are different kinds of gifts according to the grace given to you and we must keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In all the passages, the Holy Spirit works in us to bring about acts of service Service to God and service to the body of Christ. And through grace, Christ gives individual gifts, individual different gifts, so that we can glorify him and serve the body of Christ. As we follow the calling the Holy Spirit places upon us, we take part in equipping those around us so that they too can perform works of service that God has prepared for them. The focus of the local church that is moving the gifts of grace given is is to serve one another. We look not to ourselves, but to the needs of others, is the supernatural, God-prepared order of things. As we are faithful in our calling, we bless and exhort and teach and build up those around us so that they can move into the gifts that Christ has given them. In the same way, they will bless, encourage, exhort, teach and build up those around them. The church will become this kind of big, virtuous circle where we encourage each other in our walk with the Lord. The second part of verse 12 says that these gifts should result in us being built up until we reach, attain to unity in the faith and become mature. As we follow the Spirit's leading in our ministry to each other, we will improve the health and maturity of the church and we'll grow closer to God. So what's the point of all this ministry and all this building up? 
What does God identify as God's purpose in all this? What does Paul identify as God's purpose in all this? In verse 13, he writes, that the goal is to reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Also, that we should become mature, reflecting the character of Christ. These teaching gifts, Paul suggests, are crucial to the health of the church. The many different gifts listed throughout the New Testament all have important roles to play, either for believers or unbelievers, But through these teaching gifts, the church will grow to reflect the full character of Christ to those around. Thinking back to the opening words of this chapter, as we live the life worthy of the calling that we've received, we will be unable to do anything other than attract the lost to Christ. We've talked several times about unity over the past few weeks. Through the sacrifice of the cross, Christ bought peace and reconciliation. The the gift of the church is the unity brought brought by Christ, and in verse 3 of this chapter, Paul charges us to maintain the unity of Christ. And just as Christ takes us in a journey of sanctification, oh, no, hang on a second. Just as Christ has given it to us, now we must actively live in it, not take it for granted. Okay, in verse 13, he says that we also need to grow in the unity, into unity. Christ has given us the unity that we're charged with maintaining, but we're also to grow into this unity. There's an idea of a journey that each of us must take to learn how to be unified. Just as Christ takes us on a journey of sanctification, so Christ takes us on a journey to become united. As Jonah mentioned last week, this is not a unity where we just all gather together and vote to think the same thing and hey presto, we're united. No, this is is a unity that grows in us as we learn more about who Christ is and begin to reflect him more and more. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart. That has to be our starting point. Okay. Our first love, our overriding passion must be to know him. Paul expresses this strength of his desire when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 7 and 11. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Can you hear the passion in what he's writing? Okay. And by the way, he did say rubbish. He does speak British English. But can you hear the passion? He says, I want to know him. I want to know, I want to be like him. I want to live like him. I even want to be like him in his death. I don't want to be like what I've been. What he says, that's what I want to say. Where he's, what he did, that's what I want to do. How he lives, that's how I want to live. I want to know him and love him so much that I will not be satisfied until you cannot tell us apart. That's Paul's passion. The high point of my parenting career with my firstborn son came one day while I was standing the fence when we lived back in California. I think he was about three or four years old and he was hanging around in the garden watching me and I could tell that he didn't just want to be a spectator. And so I suggested that he go and get on some old jeans and some boots. 
And I would give him a brush and he could help me. His face lit up. He was excited. Yes, Dad, he exclaimed. I'm going to get my jeans. I'm going to get my boots. I'm going to get the brush. I'm going to get the can. And I, I... He paused for a second and then he blurted out, I want to be just like you. If I could have stopped time for that moment and just basked in that experience, just for a little while, the passion of a boy who wants to be just like his dad. Let's spend our energy getting to know our Lord. Let's find out what he is doing. Let's get tired of just watching. Then let's get on our old jeans and our boots and let's go and be just like Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul used the imagery that Christ had formed the church as a new man. And now he says that we are called to be mature, to grow into mature manhood. We are called to grow, grow together corporately, but we're also called to grow individually. In verse 14, there's a mixture of imagery there. Paul has some infants, some boats tossed forwards and backwards, and some deceitful men. He says that we should no longer be like little infants. Not in the sense that Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. No, he's talking here about people who you know, have, have a, have a lacking in wisdom, lacking in knowledge. They're unskilled. They're untaught. Such people have no defenses of their own against um, the, the tricks of the enemy. At the end of verse 14, we have deceitful, cunning, crafty men. These are people with false wisdom, skilled, able to impress, but using trickery, lying in wait, ready to leave, lead others into error. Against such people, infants have no protection. We must be ready for such deceit. We must make sure that those that we serve are ready. Imagine a small boat tossed backwards and forwards, unable to, get to plot a course because of the waves, forced to go in directions it did not want to go, or a sailing boat blown away, blown around by a wind going this way and that, like people following one idea and then another. Okay, there are times when life seems it wants to throw to us every bad thing it can find. When that happens, we have, we have a struggle to keep on the path set before us. As the waves bear down on us, we might feel like we want to turn and run from the storm. If we have unity and faith and knowledge of the Lord, then we can receive encouragement to persevere, depending on the Lord by our side. Other times may seem confusing. There are voices, many different voices. Some of them sound so convincing. We have to keep the word, the foundation laid by the prophets and apostles. If we develop this discipline in ourselves and we teach this discipline to others, the love of the Lord will spread out from us and will give hope to those who are currently in complete ignorance of Christ. Paul calls us to take these gifts and use them to ensure that we serve each other, build up each other, become mature in the fullness of Christ so that we, can, we are not left to wander aimlessly about. In Matthew chapter 9, there are some different, you know, it recounts different uh, ministries that Jesus undertook. In verse 36, it says that Jesus looked upon the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, sheep without a shepherd are in danger. A flock of sheep wandering on a hillside may soon get into trouble with predators. 
They have no natural defenses to protect themselves, and sheep always make bad decisions. For example, whenever there's a snowstorm, they run the wrong direction, they get covered in the snowdrift. Okay, Jesus saw people struggling, trying to make their way through life, harassed. He saw them helpless, not knowing where to find safety or good food. Sometimes in life, that might be your experience. You might end up feeling harassed and helpless. When that happens, be like Paul. Focus on who Jesus is. Firmly root yourself in his word. Reach out to your brothers and sisters around you. By focusing on who God is, by sharing the encouragement of the teaching of the word, we can grow in the unity Paul mentions. With the foundation of focus correct, we shall avoid the pitfalls mentioned and get to the place where we can speak the truth in love. The truth is important. With the truth, we can avoid never-ending immaturity. We can end up, we can avoid being lost and going round and round in circles. The truth helps us recognize and protects us from the enemy's lies and those deceitful schemes. However, it's love that builds up the body. It's interesting to know that here, it's interesting to note that here in Ephesians chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, and in Romans 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, diversity of the body, and love together. Here in, in Ephesians 4, the passage is quite short. In verse 11, he mentions the five teaching gifts. Then in verse 15, he mentions love and the body parts joining together. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 9, Paul uses the illustration of the different body parts. And then he talks about the gifts. And then he ends with a call for us to love one another. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spends chapters 12, 13, and 14 talking first about gifts, then the illustration of the body, then the importance of love, and then he goes back to talking about gifts again. The Corinthians obviously needed a lot more input, which is a good thing for us because we need a lot of input too. Okay, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul underlines how important it is to act in love. Okay, in Ephesians, he merely says... Speak the truth in love. In Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, he declares, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have faith that can move a mountain, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Imagine that you walk into a room desperate to hear the truth, and all you can hear is a clanging cymbal. What is the clanging cymbal? It's a terrible noise. It's a distraction. In the end, you will leave the room just so that you can get some peace. Imagine that I come and I need someone to pray for me. I need someone to tell me that something which is going to encourage me. And you cannot speak to me in love. It will be to me as, in the end, it will be to me as if you were not even there. The word says it will be as if you were nothing. Okay, the inference here is that Christ is building his church from very different people, blessing them with very different gifts, bringing them to unity and maturity, and that love is the vital ingredient that brings it all to life. In verse 15, Paul writes, instead of being tricked by deceit or tossed by storms, we shall grow to become like Christ, actually grow into Christ, as we speak the truth in love. The idea in Greek here is not just that we're going to speak words of truth, it's that we're actually going to live the truth. We want to 
attack the English language for a second. We're going to do truth. Okay, it should be a hallmark of who we are. He could have written, if you like, as you live lives to tell and demonstrate truth lovingly. That's what he's thinking of. The two must go together. Okay, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John chapter 14. But the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love. Note also that Paul begins this section in verse 2 by mentioning love. He says, be completely humble and patient, bearing with one another in love. And he ends this section in verse 16 with love. The whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The end of verse 16 there brings us back to the idea of unity. Okay, we're different parts of the body. We have different gifts. We all depend on each other. Each part must do its work. It's a principle in God's dealing with humanity that we should learn to glorify God, serve others, and deny ourselves. Where selfishness rules, there can be no unity. As we make ourselves the most important, we cut ourselves off from those around us and from God. We start to care only for ourselves to the detriment of the body. If you read the account of Adam and Eve back in Genesis, you'll see that one of the terrible results of the first sin was a breakdown of relationships. Adam and Eve were before God looking after themselves. Our enemy of old knows our weakness, and he will try to deceive us in the same way. Okay, God says we cannot be alone, and we should not try it. As we depend on each other and serve each other, we will see God's glory. God's glory. However... It can only happen when our number one passion is the Lord. Let's just pray. Father, I pray that you'll speak into our hearts, Lord, and show us what it is that you want to change in us, what you want to do in us, Lord, to bring us to the place where we can be your glory to those around us. I pray that you will bind us in unity as we serve each other and learn to um, serve you and grow closer to you. Amen.